0: Wayfair 515 radio check. Wayfair 515 Albuquerque Center. Roger, climb and maintain 13,000. Juliet Mike 21, squawk 4, 201, ident. Juliet Mike 21, climb and maintain 17,000. Clear direct to Albuquerque via the aircraft calling, please stand by. Jane, Mike 21, turn heading. Disregard. Aircraft calling, say again. Lifeguard 46, clear direct Albuquerque, climb and maintain 17,000. Juliet, Mike 21, turn left heading 115. Wayfair 515, traffic 3 o'clock, King Air, turn left heading 085. Sierra Alpha, Alpha contact Albuquerque Center 134.6. Contact Albuquerque Center 134.6. Wayfair 515, descend to one, zero, thousand. Juliet, Mike two, one, do you have that traffic at your nine o'clock? Wayfair, five, one, traffic. Do you have that traffic at Wayfair, five, one,
1: five. Hi, and welcome to Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television. I'm film critic and horror author Gretchen Falker Martin, and with me is my illustrious co-host...
2: TV critic and author of Pain Don't Hurt, Sean T. Collins.
1: Today we're going to be talking about the episode of Breaking Bad in which Walter causes a plane crash by letting a girl choke to death on her own vomit.
2: You hate to see it, honestly. You hate to see it.
1: You really do. Yeah. It's a pretty uh, solid case for not letting someone choke to death on their own vomit.
2: I think a really definitive case against it, honestly.
1: Yeah, in a, a cosmic sense. I mean, it's like, it's such a strong case against letting someone choke on their own vomit that it reaches right past all the conventions of modern drama and goes back to like Oedipus.
2: Yeah, it, it it really has a feeling of like the gods themselves intervened in this story to make a point about this man, this 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 horrible, horrible man at the center of all this.
1: And even more horribly, it's a point that on a mathematical level, he understands and is awed by, but it it occasions no change in his behavior at all.
2: Yeah, there's that scene in the subsequent season, because this is, I should say, it's an episode called ABQ, which stands for Albuquerque. It's the uh, season finale of the second season of Breaking Bad, written by series creator Vince Gilligan, directed by Adam Bernstein. And there's a follow-up scene- that is really mortifying in the subsequent season where he's still a high school chemistry teacher at this point, And his high school is having an assembly to commemorate the deaths of all these people on these planes that crashed in large part through stuff that Walt did. And, and he kind of sickeningly tries to find the bright side of it. Uh,
1: right. Like that neither plane is fully loaded or that many other commercial jets have a much higher passenger capacity and he does it in this really like with this numb affect you know like he's just sort of musing aloud
2: it's really grim and at the time it's anomalous like cuz it's on, it's not really played for laughs but it is it's like it's like it's just on the dramatic side of cringe comedy that's right. that scene you know it is so awkward and uncomfortable and you you see everybody kind of look at him aghast but it really is the signpost for the future of the whole show and his his increasing ability not even to justify his bad acts but to to really just come out to out and out and enjoy them and get a kick out of having the power of life and death, which he by the end of the series embraces wholeheartedly like it's very in some ways it's easy to recognize the Walter White of the final seasons of the show in this person in a pink sweater who's sitting outside of his pool ruminating but at the same time it's also he still has a long way to fall and i think that this episode and and this particular sequence with the plane crash is the shove off the edge that gets the character where he goes in the end i think i
1: agree with you and you know you mentioned earlier it's like a moment of divine intervention and yeah the way that Bernstein films the actual explosion, which is with this camera that is whirling through the smoke and fire and debris, it looks like a volcano eruption. Mm -hmm. You know, it it looks like some event that would have completely overawed a pre-technology society. It looks almost like a, like the smoke willows you get after fireworks go off, but like from hell,
2: yeah, yeah and and he looks at it in in sort of dumbfounded shock and and disbelief and confusion, because at this point he does i mean, I guess he can surmise it was a plane accident of some sort, otherwise, why is something exploding in the sky above your town, but right. he doesn't know for a fact that the reason this happened is that the air traffic controller was the father of Jane, the girlfriend of his partner in crime, Jesse, whom he watched choke to death on her own vomit and allowed this to happen in order to thwart her plans to uh, kind of enjoin in, in Jesse in blackmailing Walt for money.
1: I believe it's actually uh, his role is more direct because when he goes to shake Jesse, he shifts Jane onto right. her back.
2: Right, right.
1: Which where, which is why she aspirates and chokes on the vomit.
2: Right, because they make a point elsewhere in, in the previous episode uh, of saying, you know, I think Jane rolls Jesse on his side at a certain yeah. point and like makes that ex- up. Right, right, makes that explicit. And there's um, even
1: uh, there's a wonderful corollary where Walt does the same thing for his infant daughter. Mm-hmm. Who uh, was just
2: born, by the way, who was just right. born. At least Almost in, in, like
1: he, he just snatched having a daughter from the firmament and someone else lost it.
2: Yeah. And I, I don't know about you, but where I was coming from with breaking bad at this point, this sealed the deal for me. This, this plane, the plane crash specifically is, is really what made me connect with the show on a deeper level because I'd heard all sorts of great things about it. You know, I I don't remember how far behind I was when I started watching it, but I remember thinking like, oh, this first season's like, this is a, a fun kind of like gang that couldn't shoot straight story and that like, just a, a story of escalating catastrophes. Like from right. the moment he decides to cook meth to provide money for his family because he believes he's dying of cancer. Everything is a fucking catastrophe with this guy. Like from the moment he starts, like yeah. the first people they turn to, like stick him up, and it's like he he tries to po- he poisons them to death with chemicals, and he winds up in the desert in his underwear, and the very famous imagery from the first episode, and it, it, you know they try and dissolve a, a, a person's body in the bathtub, and the, they dissolve the bathtub, and it falls through the floor, like all these kinds of things, like you know he keeps getting in over his head and everything he does to fix it just makes things worse and i i remember thinking that was like a good idea for a television show and a fun thing to watch but when you get to the point where he where jane chokes to death and he does nothing to stop it and kind of watches with his hand over his mouth i was watching with my hand over my mouth too which is kind of my go-to reaction for when i see something really terrible uh, in, a, in a show or in a film. And I felt like the enormity of that act, which was m- much worse in a way than anything he'd done before, because this is a person who was not threatening his life. It was not a killer be killed situation in any way. Right.
1: The threat it, was that she would take Jesse away and that maybe somewhere down the line that would make a problem for Walt
2: right potentially right um, but
1: really it's it's just his petty little like suburban dad need for control
2: yeah and it was it was that death scene was so gruesome uh, both physically and morally that i really didn't know how the show was going to address it and this plane crash in addition to being a sign from the gods i thought was a sign from the writers room that they're like we understand the enormity of what this man has done. Right. And the only way we can convey it is by tearing down the sky. Almost literally.
1: Right. It's literally fire and twisted metal raining out of heaven. Like right. The, the natural world echoes what he has done.
2: This is the kind of thing I respond to. Yeah. I think um, a lot in cinema of all kinds because I, I've made this argument a million times, but That's what spectacle is, or should be, I think, or can be. Spectacle is a way of conveying, through extraordinary imagery, the extraordinary heights and depths that our emotional lives experience. It it does so in a visual vocabulary that's beyond our everyday ability to articulate these emotions and these feelings. It makes them real in a way that just standing around talking about it or something less traumatic or almost surreal just isn't capable of, of handling this really cement like i felt like breaking bad got it at this point i was like oh okay this yeah. is this is the real deal
1: it reminds me a lot of the way that you wrote about the monolithic horror image something that centers and recontextualizes a whole story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it does have a lot in, because I tend to connect spectacle with genre generally, because I think that that's basically what a lot of genre work traffics in almost definitionally. And
1: you are, you are taking a commonly understood, but difficult to articulate meaningfully concept. And you are sublimating it into something that people will have a fresher more visceral reaction to, you know, like every family knows what it's like to cope with, say a man with weak character, a father who is not what you would expect him to be or want him to be. But in force majeure, that literally appears as an avalanche. It, It becomes unavoidable.
2: Yeah. I mean, this, this is Walt Sins raining down from the sky yeah. upon an unsuspecting populace. And another thing that I liked a lot about it is that it kind of unmakes the show's cleverness. Because Breaking Bad's a very clever show,
1: mm-hmm. I think,
2: in a way that's very appealing, but I think can operate somewhat to its detriment. And one of the things that it did during season two is that several episodes – Begin with the cold open where you you have snippets of what turns out to have been the aftermath of this plane crash where you see debris including a pink teddy bear in the white family's pool. and you assume and you see dead bodies under tarps on the lawn and things like that, evidence markers and stuff like that. And your assumption is that there's some been some sort of explosion in his meth lab or something. And that it's destroyed the home, or that his home has been, has fallen under attack by other dealers or something like that. You know, it varies depending on what point of the season you're at. And it winds up being that all along the future, something that we didn't anticipate. It wasn't a meth, meth lab explosion. It wasn't anything tied so directly to his criminal career, but it was without a doubt the result of that career. It was just so much more. Than a, a, just a meth lab explosion or something like that, that affected him and his family, and only him and his family. In a way, he and his family are unscathed by it. Like, shit rains down on their lawn, and that's unpleasant, but, but that's it. That's it. Right.
1: Hundreds of people died. Yeah. You know, in the screaming wind, thousands and thousands of feet above the earth in the space of a second
2: just poof gone vanished. And I think the pink teddy bear that features so prominently in those teasers at the beginning of the episodes, which if you read the episodes the episode titles out loud, the one's that it appears in it's like I believe it's 737 down over ABQ, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's the model of the plane and the location of the crash and it's very clever. But the the pink teddy bear which obviously belonged to a child who dies in this explosion, points to another aspect of Breaking Bad that I think becomes more important as you go, which is in order to illustrate Walter's depravity, you have to threaten children.
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, he becomes indistinguishable from the cartel that he professes to be repulsed by in early seasons. Yep. He poisons Brock. He inadvertently, but still fairly directly, kills every child on both flights. Mm -hmm. And in the end, he, uh, he rationalizes his way through Todd's murder of an innocent child. Yeah. Which is, I think, maybe the most repulsive he ever feels on screen. Yes. Is when he just doesn't really have much of a reaction to it.
2: Yeah, he's he's too far gone at that point.
1: This is one thing that I really respect about Breaking Bad. You know, Tony Soprano never threw a child under a car, and he would never have done that. Right. And Breaking Bad went there, and, yeah. And I don't, I don't feel that that's a failing on the part of The Sopranos. Those are two very different forms of criminal enterprise, but it's certainly. A dark, dark place that Breaking Bad went that a lot of shows weren't willing to go. And right. it, Not to drag this old horse out for another kick, but it makes me even angrier that the end is such a pulled punch.
2: Yeah, it's really grim, I th- I think, in a different way than I've used the word grim before in this podcast, <laughs> yeah. to, uh, to see them kind of let Walt skate a little bit in the end. You know, they pit him against Nazis, which... At one point in America, it was a, it's like a, a slam dunk in terms of who the good guys and the bad guys were supposed <laughs> to be. Here's something I always
1: thought, and I I hate to get into what ifing and they should having. I, I think that's really shabby criticism, and I typically never engage in it. But
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I am sensitive to this issue. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
1: But he should have just gotten fucking rumbled and arrested while he was planning his big takedown. And then the show should have ended with a montage of the Nazi organization expanding and growing and profiting.
2: That would have been fantastic.
1: That would have been like the most brutal ending imaginable. But it doesn't. It ends with Walter killing all the Nazis and dying heroically, letting Jesse out of slavery. And this, that's pretty much the size of it.
2: Yeah, it has a fucking Watchmen TV show ending.
1: Yeah, the least believable part to me, like I could believe that he would harbor affection for Jesse and maybe even feel guilt about what happened to him. But I could not believe that he would have perspective on why he did the things that he did. And when he is able to be honest with Skylar, this is a man who is defined by his horrible re- intelligent, artificial bonhomie. You know, he is one of the fakest screen presences I can imagine, or uh, that I can recall. I'm thinking specifically right now about when Jesse soaks their home in gasoline and Walt has to come up with a cover story as to why the living room is covered in gasoline. And he gives this appallingly dishonest speech where he talks about getting doused at the gas station in some kind of accident and the way that he enunciates is so palpably disgustingly false you just feel like you're watching some kind of poorly programmed android breakdown
2: yeah he's he's only a good liar if you want to believe him which of course his family does because why wouldn't you you know And that's the other thing that's important about this particular episode is that this episode is where his family life finally breaks down. He goes under surgery for his cancer, it's successful, but then Skylar leaves him because she's like, You've been dishonest about X, Y, and Z. You weren't in a fugue state. You didn't go to your mother's house. Like all these bullshit stories he's made up to explain why he disappears for days on end because he's, you know, he's stuck in a math lab in the desert or whatever. And he's like, you know, if you don't, I'll tell, I'll be honest with you. If, if as long as you promise not to leave, and she's like, I'm too scared to find out what the truth is, which at this point is correct for for Skylar, and she leaves, and that's what he's sitting out. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm sure he is still ruminating on the death of Jane, which he did seem to take to heart, not enough to not kill her, but he's also ruminating on the collapse of his family, and I do think there's probably a way in which this plane crash echoes his own emotional state. So it's, it's not solely a commentary on him from, uh, the gods, so to speak, in the form of the writer's room. I do think it represents his, his mental state to an extent. And the the remainder of Breaking Bad is about him powering past that shit. Right. Right. Like no more will Walter White be chagrined or ashamed because of his family's response. Like he just has to seize, he has to seek more control as time goes by to avoid being put in a position where he needs to feel guilty about anything.
1: I think you're right. And, you know, I think there's also the angle that he must on some level, see the explosion as a manifestation of what's happening, happening in his own life, which is the kind of colossal act of narcissism <laughs> that will later allow him to justify literally anything. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Isn't this plane crash unfortunate for me? Insofar right. as it illustrates how upset I am right now that yes. my wife has left me after I've deceived her like repeatedly about my murderous criminal enterprise for months on end. Like right. what, a, what a downer this is for me. There's an
1: astonishing scene in that show that I think is one of the smartest pieces of commentary on a certain white American male mindset that I've ever seen it's during the episode "Fly," which I think is a, is a bit overhyped. Oh God,
2: yes, I like it fine, but Jesus Christ, yeah, give it it's a, a, a fucking rest. Episode. It's yeah. it's
1: not the show's masterpiece by any we're, means.
2: We're all familiar with bottle episodes. Congratulations, so are you.
1: Yeah. Oh
2: God. Anyway, um, fucking. It also gave us Ryan Johnson, so thanks a lot.
1: <laughs> I will say for Ryan, he did a hell of a job with Ozymandias.
2: That's true. That also gave us Ryan Johnson. You know, you win some you lose some.
1: Yeah. <laughs> in conclusion, Ryan Johnson is a land land contract. <laughs> but anyway, he's talking about Skyler leaving him and Jesse has just snuck sleeping pills into his coffee and he starts to mumble and sort of speak in a stream of consciousness and he says I believe that there exists a combination of words that would make her understand. And it's like human communication to Walt is just a bunch of fucking magic spells you cast to make people feel and do what you want them to feel and do.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because there is no way to make it look good. There's no scenario in which I have murdered multiple people. I manufacture a highly addictive substance that destroys lives and guts communities from the inside out. And also I literally never stop lying to you. There's no way that that feels good to the other person. There's no way that they take that into their heart and reasonably decide, yeah, okay, I'm cool with all of that. Mm -hmm. But he thinks that what, by arranging words in the proper order, he can just sort of flip a switch in her brain. That's that's crazy. People talk that's, that's how incels think.
2: Yeah, it's like yeah, his his marriage is essentially like a sudoku where it's like if it can arrange it in the right order it'll work, but Right. It's that's deranged. not Yeah, it's 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 fucking crazy.
1: I think he's doing the same thing. I think he's doing that same exact thing when he gives that speech in front of the assembly about the plane crash. He's moving the pieces of it around in his own mind until it's something that he understands and feels he can incorporate into his life. And that's, that's the the horrible corollary to the way that he talks about communication is that that is the way that he reasons with himself. He actually can manipulate his own brain in the way that he assumes he can manipulate others because he does not understand that emotional relationships are not like static systems.
2: Yeah, his, his lifestyle requires him to both be incredibly smart and willfully stupid at yes. the same time. I mean, it's like, I realize as I say this that I'm borrowing a description of how the party functions in 1984, where in order to s- survive in this society, you have to do this unbelievably complex mental arithmetic to make their lies work for you. But you also have to be like shit stupid and, and, and just swallow any fucking slop that they sling at you. And I mean, look no further than the fact that this explosion happens in a blue sky, which is the fucking name of his fucking meth. Uh Uh-huh. Like you have to purpose, like the show obviously is aware of this and we as viewers are aware of this. We have to, for Walt to make sense as a character, you have to believe that on some level he sees this and rejects it, like he, he puts it aside. But it's like the most screaming—like uh, he's like been—he's been like attacked by a metaphor, right? And he has to like he has to come up with any other, any other explanation or rationale or rationalization for what happened that when doesn't. They
1: say- you wouldn't know an X if it bit you on the ass. This is what they mean.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yep. Yep. And for it to happen, you know, I have I have the Wikipedia page in front of me open right now, and it happens in season two, episode 13. And I think it's a remarkably sophisticated thing to happen in the second season of a show.
0: Absolutely. Especially, especially, especially a
1: show with a foreshortened first season.
2: Bingo, exactly. It takes a lot of shows and i assume this is the kind of thing we'll be talking about a lot as as this wonderful podcast continues into the future that it takes a lot of shows including very very good ones some time to find not to find their footing's not the right word for it but to become what they are i guess to recognize what they're doing and to, and just to drill down on it and do that you know and it takes some shows have shitty first seasons that are just straight up not good, and then turn it around really rapidly season two, or whatever. Right. Breaking Bad, Fire, etc. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Breaking Bad, I think, had a good but short first season, and a and a good second season. This, to me, is where the show's confidence in itself and its confidence in its audience kind of merged, and. It handed you this imagery and was like, here, you know what to do with it. And it reminds me a lot of another explosion that is the climactic act of the second season of a show, which is Blackwater and Game of Thrones. Game of
1: Thrones, right, when they detonate the enormous oil slick of wildfire out on Blackwater
2: Bay. Right. Because that explosion, is that is warfare. Like That's the show's argument that it's making with that image. That right. You have unleashed, by going to war, a force that is unstoppable. Unstoppable in its destructiveness. You can't control it. You can't contain it. You've just set the world on fire.
1: Right. And- you have prayed to something, invoked something that you don't understand. What I always think of when I see that explosion, and God, that image really um, put me back on my ass. Mm-hmm. And the the corresponding sequence in the book is is really extraordinary. That whole that whole part of Clash of Kings is fantastic. Yeah, but it's very very visually different for budgetary and stylistic reasons, and because you there's no human way that you can shoot the horses climbing over ships tangled together. <laughs>
2: right, right.
1: But the explosion is so tremendous and almost it's it's almost like the goddamn nuclear explosion from the dream in terminator 2 Mm -hmm. you know it you see people literally get blown off their own skeletons yeah there's such a cold hateful impersonality to it they all die instantly because someone touched one chemical compound to another Mm -hmm. it really takes all possible romance out of the act of killing
2: oh yeah yeah there's no there's no glory in it right you know? and then the
1: the aftermath is so despicable and full of people experiencing unbearable trauma and awful physical pain
2: but oh, anyway God. yeah no no I mean we could talk about I um, maybe we will talk about black water in this podcast one day but I don't know. I think it's worth bringing up here anyway though because in both cases, you're dealing with explosions, and I think there's something worth teasing out of that, like this rending of the fabric of reality.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You feel in both cases that like something has been torn that can't be reassembled or, or put back together.
1: Right, of course.
2: I don't know. Now, Now you're kind of now it gets into territory that I find difficult to articulate, articulate.
1: Well, it's, you know, it's it's metaphysical subject
2: matter. Yes.
1: And I think you've already got the biggest part of it, which is that it is a period. You're finishing a sentence Mm -hmm. and correspondingly you're opening up the vast blank space of whatever comes next which is now completely uncertain because all of the ways in which we experience life have literally just been erased in a colossal pinwheeling fireball. Yeah. You cannot use your senses in an explosion. You cannot navigate or touch an explosion. It's fleeting instant. It happens and then it's over. It's immediately in the past. There's no ability to interrogate the experience of it. Yeah. It really is like God reaching down from heaven and just stubbing something out with his finger.
2: Yeah. You make a good point because this episode, again, according to Wikipedia, aired on May 31st, 2009. And at that point in time, what remained the freshest image of an airline explosion in the American consciousness? I do think it's commentary on that, at least in part. And I, I and yeah, it's this enormous finger pointing directly at guys in their sweaters, like looking at their in-ground pools, you know?
1: Yeah. I think that Breaking Bad was always very critical of suburban manhood. Yeah. You know, Walter is exceptional in some ways, but he's typical in most ways. hmm And the real horror of him is not that he's a genius, but that someone let a repressed, frustrated man figure out that he could do almost anything if he stopped caring.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. He's a, he's a genius, but he's what Flannery O'Connor calls a moral moron. Yeah. Like the, it just, it just isn't what's supposed to be there at a certain point. Isn't anymore. And And I um, I
1: think that, the show contends that that is the case for many men.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Breaking Bad is one of these shows where it has a bizarro, which is a concept that I adore. And I've, I've (laughs) talked about in all kinds of contexts. Like I think on my Patreon, I just said that uh, the Iggy pop song, some weird sin is the bizarro lust for life. And I wrote a whole (laughs) piece about that, you know, and it's, it's not just bizarro. Like, I'm I'm taking this straight from a, a comic called All-Star Superman, which was uh, written by Grant Morrison and drawn by Frank Whiteley. And it's kind of a Superman story that has no real ties to continuity or anything. It's just about the idea of Superman. And it's kind of also like a 12 labors of Hercules kind of thing. And in each issue, he confronts or is challenged by or is set up in parallel to some other super strong figure that is reminiscent of Superman. Like he, he arm wrestles with Atlas and Samson. There's other Kryptonians who have survived through the bottle city of Kandor. Uh There is actual bizarro at one point. And, you know, I think with Walt, you have a, a couple of bizarros that the show sets up. One is Hank, his brother-in-law, the DEA agent. And yeah, the other Gus. The, oh, Gus. There's, there's three. There's Gus. Walter White wants to be basically right. uh, like the, a real fucking cool customer in charge of a meth empire. And there's also Mike Irmin Trout, who was introduced in this episode.
1: Oh my god, that's right.
2: Yep, yep. Just he shows ball- up
1: to uh, to
2: yeah, he's fucking Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction. He yeah. uh, he 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 helps Jesse clean up the the crime scene and gives and tells Jesse what to tell the police. Like I woke up, I found her. That's that's all I know. I think is the phrase that he uses, yeah. or something like that. And uh, you can examine Walt as a suburban American man simply through the lens of the other bald, <laughs> the other bald American men in the show. Yep. Like, yep. this is panoply of bald dudes, <laughs> <laughs> all of whom
1: enjoy some version of Walt's life. Yes, and- you know with. Mike, I would say that the contention that what he does is for his family is much closer to true.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Because he actually nurtures relationships with them. Right. And whether or not those relationships will weather his granddaughter becoming an adult who can see through deception is a, a whole other bag of cats. But when we see him, he's someone who has genuine connections to his family and who is not concerned with self aggrandizing. Yeah. He would like to remain anonymous.
2: Yes. That's a, his power is in his anonymity.
1: And with Hank, the missing element in Hank's life is that Hank doesn't have a family. He has Marie, his mm. wife. But they don't have children. Which is so interesting. Yeah. And when you set him against Walt there, there is at one point some tension about the idea that Hank and Marie might want to steal Walt's children. Right. And of course, Walt's children, you know, his, his son, Walter Jr. Gravitates towards Hank, who is a more traditional type of man than Walter. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Like yeah. Manhood. I do think that Gus is a, a really good, uh, Bizarro for Walt because he does everything that Walt believes is true about himself. He is quiet and logical and anonymous and does everything pretty much perfectly. The only thing that he does wrong is he makes the mistake of trusting Walter. Yep. And then the same politesse that makes him immune to pursuit and persecution by the law Renders him unable to strike back
2: effectively. Gus is so animated by this years, this decades long, I guess, vendetta against his partners in the cartel for killing his partner. Right.
1: His partner in two senses his lover and his co conspirator in methamphetamine man- manufacture and distribution.
2: Right. And that's ultimately his undoing is pursuing this Vendetta against Hector Salamanca, the
1: yeah.
2: surviving member of the the last surviving member of the cartel that killed his partner. So those the the last sort of vestige of giving a shit about another person is, is sort of which which curdles into murderous vengeance is what kills him in the end. Again, not to beat the dead horse, but it's weird that after showing in the form of Gus and what happens to Gus, what a fucking stupid idea revenge is, and like how it doesn't make you suddenly like the super competent badass. Like Walt gets his revenge in yeah. the end; he kills it the sucks. Nazis, he frees his partner, he, he manages to pass on his money to his family by threatening and humiliating his hated old business partners who made a legitimate fortune without him, like.
1: I will also say that the part in which he intimidates and humiliates them, he is unquestionably cool. He just looks really cool doing it.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, he gives this slick monologue and there are other instances in which his dominating other people is made to appear repulsive. So I have to believe it's intentional that there it's much more reserved. Right. Man. That last episode sure does
2: fucking suck. It's a bummer, man. It really is a bummer. It, it, Oof, that bummed me out. Yeah. And I remember trying to pull it apart and be like, am I just, am I looking for a crime doesn't pay narrative in the end?
1: No, there's nothing under the hood.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because
1: it's not, it's not gleeful. He both acknowledges the wrongness of what he's done and then gets away with it. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Which is like the shittiest, most, me- most mealy-mouthed version of it.
2: It really is like trying to have your cake and eat it, too.
1: I mean, the other the other successful version of the show is one in which during that tussle with Skylar over the knife, his son falls forward and is killed. Yep. And the ultimate lie is put to what he's always said as his motivation, which is providing for his family and making sure they're safe. Right. You know, it's just it's pulled punches all the way down,
2: and there are ways to, uh, I think, address the crimes committed by a character while still keeping in mind whatever warmth they may still feel towards certain members of their family or certain just aspects of life. And you you brought up the Sopranos earlier and the fact that Tony would never kill a kid, and it's true, but that's turned around against him in the episode where Doctor Melfi finally kicks him to the curb. Because she's reading in a book how sociopaths tend to be treacly when it comes to infants, children, and, children animals. and animals, right? Which has been which has been Tony's deal since the first fucking episode when the ducks fly away and he passes out, right? So even these these humanizing aspects of Tony Soprano's life and his way of existing in the world and justifying his crimes to himself, like let's not forget what like. Oh, I don't know how, how 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 spoiler do you want to be about The Sopranos in this episode about Breaking Bad?
1: Oh, I think it's okay to talk about the the life and death of
2: Philip Leotardo. Okay, yeah, well, yeah, he you know he arranges for Philip Leotardo's execution in front of his infant grandchild when he decides to kill Christopher Moltisanti, his nephew, and. In many ways, sort of heir apparent, I guess. Um, I think
1: for a while he was, and then by the time Tony murders him, he's not that anymore. Was, that yeah. was no longer
2: the case. Um, but he you had know, that he,
1: conversation with Bobby,
2: right? But he he crashes the car, and Tony looks in the back seat and sees the the empty car seat for the baby that Chris has, and then he kills him. You know,
1: and it's interesting because it's very clearly not an act of passion.
2: Oh, no, not at all. No, not at all.
1: It's very calculated. And I think that that is such a subtle and intelligent read of the ultimate truth behind Tony's softness toward children. You know, he is a person who experiences real love and affection and clearly, you know, Mm -hmm. like loves his little niece, Janice's kid, but he sees that car seat destroyed by a branch and what he thinks is that's a good excuse mm-hmm. now he has done the unacceptable thing even if only metaphorically and i can do whatever i want to right
2: do. look what he could have done right therefore i'm going to do something
1: <laughs> right which is is uh to bring us back to walter uh, a classic little entry in his bag of tricks that he's constantly justifying the things that he does with like a sort of first strike rationale.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Including the death of Jane, because he, Mm. he went over there with the goal of like attempting some sort of rapprochement with Jesse, because he has this conversation in a bar with a man who he doesn't realize is Jane's dad, but who is Jane's dad. And Jane's dad says, well, you can never give up on family. And, at this point, Walter sees Jesse as like a wayward son or like a redheaded stepchild or, you know, like a shithead nephew or whatever. But like he feels genuine affection for Jesse. And instead of like calling it quits and a huff because he's been blackmailed, he wants to try and like talk him off the ledge of like going on some crazy bender with Jane and whatever. Right. That's why he goes over there. He doesn't go over there to intimidate anybody or to kill anybody or anything. But he's still able to put that aside and justify Jane's death, which I think at the time he knows is wrong. I mean, you can see he's crying and he he's kind of looking at the scene in shock, but he doesn't do anything about it.
1: Right. Ultimately, what he does, what he chooses to do is nothing. And you can on some level see the wheels turning. Yep. Things start to unfold in a way that would be advantageous for him
2: and he lets them. Whatever my reservations which are many about the the series finale aside, like I think Breaking Bad is in general an extremely smart and and unsparing show. Okay. And cuz what it does prior to Jane's death is effectively enlist you in Walt's cause. Because you don't really want Jane to ruin his life. Right. You don't really think that Jane and Jesse have like a real crackerjack plan for getting out of their life of meth addiction, you know, and and flying to New Zealand or whatever the fuck it is with their. I think it's heroin addiction. Heroin addiction. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No,
1: they'll be dead in like
2: a week to six months. Right. Right. There's no bright future for them ahead of them, no matter what their plan is, whatever they're going to do, whatever they think they're going to do with Walt's money. You basically know what they're going to do with Walt's money, right? Right. It Um, rhymes
1: with Schmerowin.
2: Yeah. So, so particularly in that final episode in which she dies, Jane is sort of the villain of the piece, and you don't want her to fuck things up for Walt, who at the time is still really frantically trying to balance the needs of his budding criminal enterprise with the needs of his family. Like it's in that episode that he misses the birth of his daughter. Because right. Gus has ordered him to procure like 38 pounds of meth in 30 minutes or, you know, or it's free <laughs> or
1: whatever. Yeah, right. um,
2: I was rooting against her. I didn't want her to choke to death on her own vomit. Um and, right, that's- and this
1: show brilliantly flips right over her sort of like petty antagonism.
2: Yep. You know? You can't see me, but I am nodding my head like the Jack Nicholson yes gif right now. Like, <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it did. It finds
1: this way to, without cheaply saying like, okay, well, Jane is actually wonderful and perfect. And Walt is, is unquestionably the bad guy for not wanting her to run off with Jesse. They just sort of preempt that whole discussion and show something so much more loathsome.
2: Yeah. And I just think, you know, getting back to what I said before about like how I needed something like this plane crash to happen for the show to work for me, it reflects the enormity of of what Walt has done, but for me, it also reflected the enormity of how I felt when Walt did yeah, it
1: absolutely you know? and, and something we haven't really talked about is Jane's father,
2: yeah, oh my God,
1: this is a, a- Really fucking out of nowhere performance.
2: By Q from Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah.
1: John Delancey, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the minute you meet him, it's it's like it's very evident what he has been through with his daughter, who is a an addict who has relapsed more than once. And you really you feel for him, even though he's kind of a hard ass and maybe never quite does what he should, because this whole issue has become so emotional to him, but he's got this long weathered face and these big expressive eyes. And I mean, you can tell just looking at him that she's a child he had a little later than perhaps he would have wanted if he was going to keep up with her. And that's the exact situation Walter is in.
2: <laughs> hmm Again, He's got another
1: this high stress job that keeps him away from the home a lot. It's it's a really remarkably subtle parallel.
2: He's another bizarro.
1: Yeah. And and when they have that drink, that becomes explicitly apparent.
2: Yeah. It's like the same dude. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, I know. I was just about to say the same thing. <laughs> I was literally just about to say oof.
1: And then he winds up being the mouthpiece through which this final climactic word, the explosion, is is spoken. It's his grief that's being sublimated.
2: Right. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. That's how he feels.
1: And that's that's another layer to why it's apparent importance to Walter is just another act of his narcissism's tentacles reaching out and dragging everything he sees back into himself. Yep. That this is not even something that really happened to him. It happened to this guy. Yeah, you're right. Daughter.
2: You're right. I don't know. I. It's funny because I think I held out hope that you were going to see this character again in some substantial way. You see him in news footage and then you later hear that he attempted suicide and that's it. That's it. That's, that's a wrap on, Fucking Donald, Donald Margolis. Mar-golis. Um, Honestly,
1: I thought that was a perfect decision.
2: Yeah, me too. Me too. Because, like I said, there was a part of me who was like, wouldn't it be great if in the final episode, like, Walt has moved, you know, has survived and moved on or whatever, and all of a sudden someone walks up and shoots him and it's fucking Donald Margolis. But, like. Right,
1: that's I, how Boardwalk Empire ends.
2: <laughs> it is. It is how I was just thinking that. It is how Boardwalk Empire ends. But it's. They're. there are ah, two different kinds of. Stories and two different kinds of incidents, and like, yeah, it would have felt cute in Breaking Bad's case in a way that I don't think it felt cute in Boardwalk Empire's case.
1: Agree, um, and I, I think it was Breaking Bad was so much more of a, a piece of clockwork, yeah, than Boardwalk Empire was,
2: yeah, definitely.
1: You know, all, all the pieces that were in front of you were put there very intentionally. And the final sort of Rube Goldberg reaction was always really intricate and interesting and comprehensible. Yeah. So yeah, it probably would have been a little a little bit lazy
2: right to just
1: uh, go back
2: to that well. Yeah, because whereas Boardwalk is all about the sprawl of it, and and so when this final piece does look, does click into place, it's like one of the only pieces that ever clicks into place on that show. Like it's not a show that operates in that way.
1: Right. Whereas with breaking bad, it is always exploding outward as new catastrophes pile up. But at the same time, there's a tension pulling inward. Yeah. You know, it's a, a rubber band cutting into the middle of a balloon and you're just waiting to see when it
2: pops. That may be all I have on this.
1: Yeah. I think that's a wrap on Wayfair 515.
2: Right on. Whew. Thanks it,
1: for listening everyone.
2: Thank you very much. I don't know if every episode will be this grueling to talk about. I kind of hope. I kind of hope that it will. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sean, I think that if there's one thing we can reliably produce between us, it is the sensation grueling. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I agree. <laughs> oh boy. Yes, thank you everybody for listening. This has been Cut to Black.
1: And we'll see you in a couple weeks.
2: Bye-bye.